You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, I do want to welcome you as well to worship this morning. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. We um, are very uh, thrilled that we get to be and do this thing on a Sunday morning because, you know, today is a very special day. It's, I'm told it's the Super Bowl where a contest is played. Joe, a, a match is fought. But more than that, it's Palindrome Day. And I know that's really why you're all here. No, nobody? Palindrome Day? You know, 0202, 2020? happens the last time was 909 years ago no nothing okay so here's the reality neither of those things actually matter kind of neat kind of cool no eternal significance whatsoever but what we are here to proclaim and to make a really big deal about is the fact that Jesus is alive for 2,000 years the church reoriented and re-architected the people of God's gathering time from a Saturday on the Sabbath to the day that we proclaim that Jesus is alive, the resurrection occurred on Sunday. And so under the apostles' leadership, the church began to meet on Sunday mornings to commemorate that he is alive. And so just by us gathering here together in the center of a city as a community, it is a proclamation of the thing that we believe. So I don't want us ever to forget that, that when we come to church, it is in fact a proclamation of the gospel, of the very, very good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Just us being here proclaims the gospel that Jesus is alive. Now that is an incredibly important hermeneutic, if you will, a lens through which to look at the rest of what's going to happen this morning. We have been in the book of Romans, as Mike said, since August of last year, and this morning we come to a very delicate, dicey passage, but it really boils down to this. What the Apostle Paul wants for us to know, and I believe what God wants for us to know, is our big idea from this morning, and it goes like this. Salvation is for everyone. That most basic, simple, clean principle, salvation is for everyone. That's going to bring us to Romans chapter 10. Now we're actually going to have a little bit of an on-ramp through the last part of chapter 9. I was talking to a friend this week who's kind of a hero in the faith. He's an Old Testament Hebrew scholar at Dallas Seminary. And he asked me where we, where we were this week. And I said, Romans 10. And he chuckled. He said, oh, well, I think that's actually the hardest chapter in the whole book. What are you going to say? I was like, whatever you tell me. Well, good luck. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. We'll actually start at the end of chapter 9, and we'll get a running start. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9, actually, beginning in verse 30. While you're turning there, I want to remind you that the overarching theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the thrust of the book of Romans. It's the theme of the entire Bible. And this is one of those chapters where that theme is really, really amplified and articulated. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we walked through the majority of chapter nine and it sort of ends on a tough note. 
where the Apostle Paul quotes from Isaiah in verse 29 and says, if God had not intervened, if God had not done a thing, we would have been left to destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah if God had not intervened and made us by his sovereign selection children of his promise. God did that. So now Paul's going to pick up in chapter 9, verse 30. I'm going to read beginning in verse 30 all the way through the end of chapter 10. So stick with me. Here we go. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who, per, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based upon the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will, ascend into the, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Whew! This is God's word. Clear as a bell? Let's pray and go home. No, wait, no, wait. We're going to go ahead and walk through this. Here's what we're going to do. We could spend months on this passage, but I want to make sure that we, meaning I, don't miss the forest for the trees. We're going to walk back through the end of Romans 9, through Romans 10. I'll see if we can apply this to our lives and how it really comes to bear in each of our lives. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take communion or the Eucharist. And so I ask, I request that as we're walking through this passage in Romans, that you continue to prepare your heart that you would continue to think about what does communion represent and how are you and I to come to the table together. So I'm going to start back, Romans chapter 9, 
beginning in verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? Now, this is going to sort of be the bookend. Romans 9.30 and Romans 10.21 sort of form this bookend of his argument. And it's really shocking, but it's an interpretive key to understand that everything from 9.30 to 10.21 is really making one giant argument in his overall illustration. Now, we have to remember, this is the book of Romans. It's a long one. Paul has set out his case for the gospel of God. First three chapters are about condemnation. Whether you're in chapter one or two or three, we're all in there. We have all fallen way short of the gospel and the glory of God. We've just fallen short. We can't get there. But chapters four and five are about justification. We have been found guilty as sin, but declared righteous by God's grace. Declared righteous. That's chapters four and five. And then chapters six and seven and eight are all about sanctification. Chapter eight concludes with this great grand gospel declaration. Nothing including you, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ which produces in Paul the desire to give a three-chapter illustration. Wait a minute, Paul, the imaginary objector says, if you say that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, haha, what about Israel? Because it seems like they've been separated. Paul says, I'm glad you asked. And he gives us three chapters as an illustration that though things might not look properly, Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. So we looked all last week at chapter nine. God is sovereign in his selection, brings us now to chapter nine, verse 30. And Paul says something really, really interesting. He says, what shall we say then that God has made us children of his promise, actual seeds of blessing that come not just from Abraham, not just from Isaac, but through his selection of Jacob instead of Esau, and those who are descendants of that selection are children of the promise. What shall we say then? This is what we shall say, Paul says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Whoa. We have been in the age of the church for 2,000 years. You have not been alive that long, but my sense is that most of you have been in church before. That statement ought to knock us off of our chairs because I promise you, it offends our Jewish friends. Those who were not even looking for righteousness have attained it. These nations, these Gentiles, these peoples were not good and moral and decent. They were Gentiles. They were Philistines. They were Ninevites. They were French. They were East Texan. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. <sighs> and God gave it to them. That's not fair. That's how Paul is going to start this section. He's out how he's going to conclude chapter 10. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, because remember, righteousness is the currency of the kingdom. You cannot have right standing before God unless you are full of the infinite righteousness of God. The so Romans is trying to tell you that the righteousness of God has been given freely to people in the person of Jesus Christ. Gentiles who weren't even looking for it. They weren't looking under rocks. They were not trying to figure it out. They weren't even looking for it. Have attained it. They have it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Ek pistis. It has been given to them out from a faith, not their own. It is a gift. It is granted to them. The grammar, the syntax matters a lot here. It has been granted to them. The faith that they have is itself a gift. They were not looking for it. They did not figure it out. God gave it to them. And the Jewish people recoil at this. Verse 31, 
but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, they did not succeed in reaching that law. They followed the rule book. They did what they were supposed to do, and they did not attain righteousness. Those who were not looking were granted it. They have attained it. Now, this is the sort of thing that got Paul almost killed over and over again. He would walk into a city and preach the gospel in the synagogue. And people would say, that's fascinating. Hmm, you're even talking about the resurrection and that Messiah has come. That's interesting. Come back next Saturday. Let's talk about it again. And Paul would show back up. And he would talk about the gospel, that Messiah has come. The long-awaited Messiah of Israel has come. And then he would say, and he is going to the Gentiles. And they would ball up their fists and throw them at his face. They would pick up rocks and throw them at his head. They would beat him with rods. They would hit him with whips and they would have him flogged because that was offensive. How dare you say that our Messiah goes to the Gentiles? Jesus, however, predicted it himself in Matthew 22. He told the parable of the wedding feast. I have been rejected by those who are here. Therefore, I will take it to the highways and the byways. And they did not like the sound of that. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 4, he's teaching in the synagogue and he reads from the scroll and he says, I will take this just like Elijah to the widow of Zarephath from Syrophoenicia, a Gentile woman. I will take this like Elisha to Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard that, <laughs> they took this teacher, stonemason, carpenter, not really a rabbi, whose Words were falling like grace from his lips, but when he said, I will be like Elijah and Elisha and take it to the Gentiles, they rushed him, they grabbed him, and they took him up a high mountain in Nazareth to throw him off. You can go there today, it's called Mount Precipice. They tried to throw Jesus off a mountain. Why? Because he said he would take his message to the Gentiles. Those who were not seeking it have attained it. This message is deeply offensive. But again, all of this is in the illustration that Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I know it looks bad for Israel, but let me explain. They have not attained it, but the Gentiles did, and there's a reason for that. God has a plan. Salvation is for everyone, is what Paul is going to drive home the point. Now, that does not mean that every single human being ever will be saved. Paul's not universalistic. He's saying that it is available to all peoples, tribes, tongues, ethnicities, races, nationalities, socioeconomic statuses, and demographics. There is no one for whom the gospel is not suited. Salvation is for everyone, but that does not mean that every single person will be saved. Please don't misunderstand Paul's point here. Verse 32, why? Why did Israel not receive righteousness according to their pursuits? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, this is astonishing. We talked about this a little bit last week in chapter 9. Here's the image that I want you to maintain. Paul's going to make the rest of chapter 10 say that, Israel, we have had the map. We have had the map of Messiah. Moses wrote the map of Messiah, but we've been reading it wrong. I was reading it wrong. Saul of Tarsus was reading the Messiah map wrong. You thought it was about what you could do. You've been holding it upside down with your finger and your thumb over some key turns. You've been reading the map wrong, and so you've been heading hard in the wrong direction, fast. They thought it was based on works, on their efforts, on what they could do. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, and then... 
Whew, Paul's going to list so many Old Testament quotations and citations. We could literally be here for months. I'm not going to draw attention to all of them. I'm just going to sort of point some of them out. He's going to make the point that our Old Testament, our Hebrew Bible, has been properly pointing to the Messiah and the gospel of grace all along. The map's not wrong. The map maker's not wrong. We've been reading it wrong. It's never been about works, ever. And Paul's going to make a really big deal about this because God cares about this. Because every other system of belief, every other religion, every other faith construct is based on what you must do. Every religion on the planet is based on what you must do. I don't care if it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, errant Judaism. It's all about what you have to do. Christianity is the only religion, the only faith that is based on what somebody else has done for you. In a single word, the content of your faith is substitution. Somebody else did a thing for you. In every other religion, you've got to do a thing to appease a God to earn right standing before the deities. In Christianity, somebody else undeservingly has done a thing for you. We're going to commemorate that here in a matter of moments. Substitution. And so God will not have any muddying of the waters between his grace and some religion of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then Paul's gonna quote Psalm 118, Isaiah 28, to say, this has been on the map all along. We have been reading it wrongly. Verse 33, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a, stump, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What does it mean to be put to shame? It means the thing that you trusted, the thing that you had placed your weight, the thing that you had placed your life, crumbles and is washed out from under you and you look silly when you hit the turf. That's what it is to be put to shame. You ever been there? I call that Monday through Saturday. But whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That stone will not crumble. It will not wash away. You can stand on it. Chapter 10, verse one, that continues the whole thought. This really should not be a chapter break until after verse four. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul is not anti-Semitic. He has a deep, profound heart burden for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he will say, to his countrymen. He wants them, but listen to the verb tense, to be saved, not to save themselves, to be saved, to, to be the passive recipients of God's salvation in grace by faith, that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're running really, really hard in the direction for God, but not according to knowledge, epignosis, to true experiential relational knowledge. They live in East Texas, if you follow this metaphor, and they're trying with all their might to get to Atlanta, Georgia. They're going as fast and as fierce as they can, except they're heading west. And you can go as fast and focused and furious as you would like, but if you're trying to get to Atlanta and you drive west on I-20, you're never going to get there. Disney's nice this time of year, but you won't be in Atlanta. That's what Paul says. They have a zeal for God. They're running hard. They're, they're tithing spices. They're straining gnats out of their food. They're doing all of these things, but they're going in the wrong direction. They have a zeal for God, but not according to true knowledge. They're reading the map wrongly. Verse three, he's gonna give three indictments of why this approach falls short. Chapter 10, verse three, first indictment. First, they're being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, Paul just says this about the Jewish people himself being a Jewish person. 
We don't understand. We are ignorant of the enormity, the grandeur of the glory of God. Even trying to keep the law of Moses is like building a stepladder with one, two, three. Maybe you're Captain Awesome. Maybe you're your Lieutenant Fantastic and you've got five rungs on your stepladder and you're trying to reach the Earth's sun. It's a nice little ladder you got for yourself there. You're still 93 million miles away. And let's say you put a sixth ladder on there, goody gumdrops, you're still 93 million miles away. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They didn't understand how great and glorious he actually is. They were trying to pull him down like every other religion does and make God user-friendly, make him common, make him casual. Paul says they were ignorant. They didn't understand. And by the way, neither did I, Saul of Tarsus would have said. That's the first indictment. Number two, and seeking to establish their own righteousness. We're gonna pull his down and we're gonna raise ours up because the sin of the human heart is we want to be God. Ultimately, simplistically, the sin of the human heart is we want to be sovereign, to do what we want, when we want, where we want, with whom we want. And we are dangerously unqualified for the job. Paul says they didn't understand the righteousness of God and they tried to create and manufacture their own. Thirdly, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They would not bend the knee. They would not bow the neck and say, your way's better, you're sovereign, I'm not. They refused to relent. They didn't know how big his righteousness was. They tried to create their own and they would not surrender to God. That is a stinging, darning indictment. May it never be said of anybody in this room. Verse four, for because they didn't understand, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. <laughs> verse four is the summation conclusion of verse three. They didn't understand. They tried to do their own. They, all of these things, because they didn't understand that Messiah has come. Christ is the end. Your Bible might say culmination, perfection, fulfillment. It's the telos. He is the finishing up of not just the law of Moses, the law for righteousness. He is the person that is walking around the embodiment of the moral character and quality of the presence of God himself. It's not about a list of doing stuff, of being a little bit gooder. It's a person. It's not what we expected. It's a person and he has come, Paul will say, and he has come and he has gone to the Gentiles, those who were not even looking for it. And then Paul, from verses 5 to the end of the chapter, is just going to hook together Old Testament passages to say, hey, we shouldn't be surprised. This has been foretold all the way back since the Old Testament. It's always been on the map. So Paul knows that Moses, Moses, he's our guy, if you're of the Jewish people. So Paul says, oh, you like Moses, do you? Well, let me tell you, he was a prophet foretelling the coming of this Messiah who has now come. Everything that's happened, even Moses and Isaiah foresaw. Verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, what's happening here? Well, this is the first Old Testament reference. Paul quotes Leviticus 18. Woohoo, Leviticus, where Moses says, oh, you want to follow the law? Then you have to do every single aspect of it perfectly all the time in thought, word, and deed, while you're awake, while you're asleep, every single bit in thought, in word, in deed. If you're gonna claim the law of righteousness as your righteousness, you have to live by it. Paul says, we should have seen this. It's been in the text all along. If you're gonna claim that as your, as your righteousness, every single thing you think, do, and say all the time has to be completely according to the law. Verse six. Now, verse six through eight is some of the weirdest 
language you're ever going to find. I'm going to do my best to sort of help illumine this, but I'm probably not going to. Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith says, and then everything through verses six and seven and eight is an almost direct quotation of Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, the law of God has been completed, fulfilled, and given to Moses by God for the people. And when God gives Moses the law for the people, he tells them, this is complete, this is finished, this is full, don't ask for anything else. This is all you need. It's sufficient. It's fulfilled. Don't ask for anything else. That's what God tells Moses for the people when the law is given in Deuteronomy 30. Paul takes this and he does some amazing amazing nuance to say it's actually more than we thought it was a foreshadowing of something much greater that was as yet to come it says in verse six but the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down when god says that to moses for the people in deuteronomy 30 he's saying don't ask if we're ex to expect another word we're not and then paul explains because it's jesus and he has already come it's so much more than we thought. It's always been on the map. We just couldn't see it properly. Our thumb was over the turn, as it were. Verse seven, or don't ask, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Christ has been raised. Don't ask, what else do we need? What else has to happen? Paul says, Moses foretold, this has already taken place. Verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you. Now this is a Hebrew idiom. It's an idiomatic expression in Hebrew. The readers in Rome who were Jewish would have immediately understood the Deuteronomy 30 references and they would have known the reference to the word is near you. It means it's, it's here, it's in your grasp, it's in you, it's on you, it's all around you. That word is here. That's really important that we understand the word is near you for what he says next. In your mouth and in your heart. In your mouth is an external, material, physical thing. In your heart is an immaterial, spiritual thing. It's the both and. The word of truth is near you. It's with you, on you, around you, all about you. Physically, in your mouth. Spiritually, in your heart. This is getting weird. I know, stick with me. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Please notice, there is no punctuation between verses eight and verse nine, and that the first word of verse nine is not capitalized. That's because, let me, let me brace myself for this. Romans 10.9 comes after Romans 10.8. <laughs> it's not a formula. All too often, this very familiar verse gets ripped out of context and applied as though it's an evangelism formula, and it is not. Now, is it helpful to understand some things? Yes, but we must never, ever, ever try to rip Romans 10.9 out of context and say, hey, if you'll just say this thing, you're in. It's never the teaching of Scripture. That is never the teaching of Scripture. Again, verse 8 says, what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth, in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim, the truth, the gospel. If you believe, it's yours already. Please understand that. If you believe, it's been given to you already. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 is not a thing that you do or say to get saved. Romans 10.9 is what you do and say because you are saved. 
At long last, we get to talk about the confession, the assurance, the doxology that we do at this campus. We always talk about hear and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we say a thing. What we say is essentially Romans 10, 8, and 9. Not just 10, 9, for that would be incomplete and inadequate. Romans 10, 9 is what you do because you are saved. The word is in, on, around you. It is in your mouth. And so because you are saved, you confess with your mouth. You believe in your heart because you have been saved already. If you confess, it's because you are saved. It is not something that you do to get saved. Now, entire denominations are built and broken over this misapplication. So if it seems like I'm burning a lot of calories up here, I am. It's about the most important thing I can think of talking about today, including the palindrome and the Super Bowl. It's a really, really big deal. What we do is confess and believe because we are saved, not to get saved. All the difference in the world. Verse 10, for, again, concluding thought and idea, because with the heart one believes and is justified. With the heart one believes. I, I can't make a big enough deal about this. Not with your brain. You don't figure this out. You don't make an intellectual decision. With the heart one believes. Your inner spiritual self, you believe. And you are declared righteous. Nobody chooses what to believe. You believe what you believe. Verse 10, because with the heart one believes and is, doesn't become, is declared righteous. With the mouth one confesses and is saved, is carried through to the end. Why is Paul phrased it this way? I know it causes confusion because Romans 8 concludes, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And the one who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth is saved already. We'll be saved at the end of the age, eschatologically when Jesus returns. It's not a formula for how to do something. It is a declarative description of an actual reality already. I cannot make a big enough deal about that. Verse 11, and now it's just Old Testament citation after Old Testament citation to defend what he's just said because he knows it's a big matzo ball he just dropped in the stew. So now he's gonna just drop all kinds of OT references just to defend what he said. Verse 11, for the scripture says, and again he references Psalm 118 and Isaiah 28, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in him, you have nothing else to fear nor accomplish. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Salvation is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, red, blue. Salvation is for everyone, anyone who calls him Lord. Now it's here that I need to give sort of the elements to the molecule of faith, or if you prefer, because it's almost lunchtime, the ingredients to the casserole of faith. There are three. We have to know this. What do we mean when we say faith, that we have belief? Well, there has to be a content to our faith. There is some things that we believe that are true, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived, that he died a perfect life, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he was seen by hundreds, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming again. There is some content to what we believe, so there is knowledge. There's true knowledge. Paul says, oh, the Jews were zealous for God, but not with true knowledge. This is true knowledge, the gospel that we proclaim. Secondly, there must be assent. You must agree that that's true. So knowledge, this is the content of our faith, and assent, I agree that that's true. Third ingredient, trust. 
You stand on it with all of your might and you live like it's actually true. And so when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying a great deal of gospel content. Remember, Jesus is his human name. So you're affirming that the second member of the Godhead Trinity became human, became flesh. In the likeness of a human being, God became flesh. But when you say he is Lord, now you're really piling on the gospel content. Please remember what Paul's doing here in Romans is he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament, every time the word Yahweh or Jehovah shows up in the Hebrew text, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates it as kurios, that is Lord. So when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he does not merely mean Jesus is boss or Jesus is master. If you are the kind of person that says Jesus is Lord, then you have been granted by the Spirit the belief that Jesus is Jehovah, that Jesus is Yahweh. He's not just a stonemason from Galilee. He is the sovereign king and creator of the cosmos. And if you believe that, Paul says, you didn't figure that out on your own. That did not come to you by flesh and blood. It's the same thing he says to Peter in Matthew 16. Peter, who do you say that I am? I say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, well done, Pete, but you didn't figure that out. That came to you by the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians, I was running hard in the wrong way, but then I believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that didn't come to me by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit. It's the same idea. If you confess that Jesus is Yahweh, you didn't just figure that out. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, not the freshest sandwich in the picnic basket. The Spirit of God has done a thing in you and you believe that. And that's all the difference in the world. For everyone, verse 13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, not a formula. It is a declarative description of what happens. That's from Joel chapter two. Not a formula. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's like they're already in heaven when he returns. Verse 14. Now Paul, since that's true, since he quotes Joel chapter two, Paul's gonna work backward logically. This is uh, a really delicate, tricky text. Most of the time, this passage gets used to affirm and amplify missions and evangelism efforts. And that's great. Except that that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the fact that God does a thing in people. Stick with me. Verse 14. How then will they call on him, referencing the Joel 2 reference in verse 13, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Obvious answer, they can't. They can't call on someone on whom they have not believed. Please don't miss that logic that Paul is using. You cannot call on the one on whom you have not believed. You cannot do it. You are spiritually dead in your birth. Unless... God does a thing. That's the whole point of this passage. How can they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? You can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That word is just heralding, announcing. Obvious answer, you can't. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now right there, most missions agencies say, that's us, we're the ones who send. That's awesome, good, great, marvelous. Not what the text is talking about. How can they preach unless they're sent? Paul's point is they can't. It is God who sends the herald. God who sends the preacher. God who sends the neighbor, the sister, the wife, the son, the daughter, the coworker. It is God who sends. Now that is massively important. 
It is God who sends. And unless God sends someone to speak, no one can just figure it out themselves. Should we be a part of missions and evangelism? Absolutely. Does this passage help us with that? Yes. But the point is that God is in the business of sending and he always has been. Verse 16, he'll continue with his Old Testament references. Oh, actually, verse 15, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, and then this is absolutely amazing. This is, there's so many Old Testament references buried in here, it's easy to run past them. Don't let me. 15b, he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's a familiar passage, and preachers like to usually apply that to themselves. I'm wearing boots, you like? It's not about that at all. You know who this is about? This is about a Persian king named Cyrus who the prophet Isaiah telling the people of Israel, you will go into exile. You will be cut off. You will be out of the land. You will be nationally, functionally, communally dead. But then my anointed one calls him Mashiach in Hebrew. Not the Mashiach, but God says, my anointed one I will raise up. And that anointed one is named King Cyrus of Persia. And this sovereign king will say to the people of Israel, you're free. I release you. Come home. Paul says, in the same way that Cyrus did that for the people of Israel 586 years ago, a real sovereign king will say to his people, I release you. You are free. Come home. How beautiful are the feet of him who preached the good news? It's Jesus, ultimately. It's not us. It's Jesus, foretold by Cyrus in the prophet Isaiah. Paul says, it's been in the map all along. We were reading it wrong salvation do you see is for everyone so verse 16 but they have not all obeyed the gospel not all Israel will be saved for Isaiah says Lord who has believed what he has heard from us <laughs> Paul quotes from Isaiah 53 the suffering servant passage all we like sheep have gone astray Isaiah preaches that wonderful suffering servant text and then he looks around and he says God where are they <laughs> what in the world God I'm telling them about the coming Messiah and nobody's here to listen nobody's believing me Paul says, yeah, we should have known that Israel would, re would reject. They rejected Isaiah. They rejected Jesus. They're rejecting my message. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Literally, the word regarding Christ, the word about Christ. That's how faith is given because God sends someone to say something and you call because you've believed and that's how faith occurs. Please notice there's no, hmm, X follows Y, therefore I believe that. Mm. No, 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 no. Faith comes from hearing the word about Jesus and the spirit does a thing and belief is granted because it's a gift. Now at this point, people go, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Chapter nine, God is sovereign in his selection. Hold on a second. You're saying that God has to do all this. Now what's the purpose of evangelism? Glad you asked. We'll circle back in just a moment because that's crucial. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. He quotes Psalm 19.4, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. They have no excuse. God has revealed himself sufficiently in creation. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, Moses addresses this in Deuteronomy 32. Moses says, I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Moses, 1,500 years prior, prophesied to the people of Israel, you're going to be made jealous by a people who are not you because God's going to adopt them and their job is to make you jealous. Church, age, for the last 2,000 years, what is our primary role with respect to Israel? 
persecute and punish them for killing the Christ. Oh my heavens, no. Paul says our primary purpose is to make them jealous for the Messiah and to beg them to be grafted back into the Messianic community, which is why I have a friend who's a Messianic Jew, he's a rabbi, now pastor, and he says, the most anti-Semitic act you can do is to not preach the gospel to your Jewish friends. Now that's hard to hear, because I like to be liked, and when I preach the gospel to my Jewish friends, they don't want to hear it. But it's not up to me, do you see? God's got this thing. Verse 20, then Isaiah, because he just hasn't quoted enough Old Testament yet, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Do you remember Romans 9.30? Those who were not pursuing have found me. They have attained it. He ends it here. Isaiah is so bold to say, predicting this, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Their necks are stiff, their hearts are hardened, and God says, I will continue that until the full number of the Gentiles is brought in. How many is that? I don't know, but a few more, but a few more. And so to that point, how in the world do we apply Romans 10? Let me give just a few quick implications. Reminding us all that salvation is for everyone. So how does that come to bear in our individual lives. Salvation is for everyone for whom the work of Christ is completed. He's the telos. He's the fulfillment, the completion, the perfection. It is relenting of my own efforts to try and somehow live a good life in my own power and strength and recognize that Jesus, he's done it completely. He really did it. He fulfilled the demands of God's law. Complete moral perfection and thought, word, and deed. And then he declared on the cross, finished. To tell us die with continuing effect. It's over. There's nothing left for me to do whatsoever. I don't have to try to build my little step ladder to the sun. I have been ushered already directly into his glory and presence like I'm already there. And not yet. Because I believe in my heart My soul, my spirit, my immaterial being is redeemed. My physical being, quite clearly, not yet redeemed. And yet the outworking, the product of my salvation is that even my physical material being confesses that he is Yahweh. Salvation is for everyone for whom the work of Christ is completed. There is nothing else I have to do. There is nothing else I can do. It is finished. That's good therapy. Nothing else I have to try to accomplish. It's done. Number two, salvation is for everyone who is convicted that Jesus is Lord. Salvation is for everyone who is convicted that Jesus is Lord. Just to make sure you know that Paul isn't just making this up for the church in Rome. He says a very succinct, clear thing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, He puts it this way. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. Now, I'm indwelled by the Spirit of God and I just said those words. So Paul does not just mean the auditory phonation of the vocal cords. He means to mean that. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can actually mean that Jesus is Jehovah unless the Spirit has done a work in and on them. So salvation is for everyone who is convicted that Jesus is Lord, or perhaps a better word is convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. 
that this is absolutely true to you. And I'm not saying that you never have doubts or questions or suspicions, but if you're convicted and if you're convinced, then that certainly did not come to you by flesh and blood, meaning your own intellect and wisdom, it came to you because the Spirit of God revealed it to you. You have been saved, or we might use the big word, regenerated. Now the only possible response is for you to believe, to live by faith, to walk as if it's true, to live as if it's true. Third point, salvation is for everyone committed to living like it's all true. Now let me quickly and immediately nuance that. I'm not saying that your commitment has any bearing on you getting saved. I'm not saying that. All of us always and already live what we believe. We can't help it. So it begs the question, what do you really believe? Not just what do you profess, what do you possess? Do you have this? I'm not asking if you're trying hard to be good. It's reading the map and running in the wrong direction if you're just trying to be better at trying harder. That doesn't ever, ever, ever work. I'm saying that someone who really is a believer will logically and rationally live differently because they believe that Jesus is alive. You can't help it. If you believe that he's alive, then rationally, reasonably, therefore he's God, and therefore he's a king, and therefore he's to be obeyed. And what is the primary command that God gives his people in the New Testament? Says it at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, says it at the beginning of the book of Acts. Go and make disciples. If God is sovereign in his selection, if salvation is a work of the Spirit, then why do we bother with evangelism and missions? Simple answer, because Jesus commands it. The great commission in chapter 28 of Matthew is not the great recommendation, the great suggestion. It is a command. Apparently, a part of God's predestinating grace for people getting saved is burdening Christians to give the gospel. Which leads me to my last point. Salvation is for everyone, and so evangelism is a privilege. It's not a duty or an awkward job. Of, ugh. It is a privilege that we get to say, like King Cyrus got to say, because the result and the outcome is not up to me. I can be freed of my sweaty palm anxiety of, oh, what if they don't agree? What if they don't say the right words? What if they don't mean it? It's not up to me. God sends a herald to say Jesus is alive. What do you want me to say about that? There's a man who is now very long dead. His name is Pheidippides. And clearly Pheidippides is not one of my role models. Pheidippides lived 490 BC. And he was Greek, Athenian to be more precise. Pheidippides was a soldier in the Athenian army and he was sent, dispatched to fight alongside the city-state of Athens as they held sway against the approaching invading army of Persia. And all was lost. All was going to be defeated. The Greek way of life, Western civilization, as it was first getting started, was about to be obliterated. And somehow the Athenians held sway. The few stood against the many, and Athens won. And so Pheidippides asks for the privilege to be dispatched, to run back and tell the people of Athens, we have won. Hope against hope. We have defeated the enemy. All is not lost. We have won. And the legends talk about that the, the people stood on the walls of the city-state of Athens and they saw his feet as he ran and they knew that he was bringing a gospel, a good news, that theirs was not death, theirs was life because somebody else had fought in their place. Now I know the illustration breaks down because Pheidippides ran a marathon and then dropped dead, which is why I would never do that. Too much is at stake. Nonetheless, his 
recounting of the victory was a privilege and it is to be a privilege for us as well. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.